It was the summer of 1999, and for about a month, I was actually living in Ukraine, in uh, eastern Ukraine, the city of Donetsk, uh, Russian-speaking Ukraine, currently a little bit of a civil war going on there, but in 1999, it was a pretty peaceful place, and, and I was teaching in a seminary um, as part of the Union of Baptist and Evangelical Christians in Ukraine. And uh, the students there were kind of uh, Russian Baptists, uh, and that's not related to Baptists from the United States. They were actually the, the, the descendants of, of the Anabaptists of the, the 16th, 17th century who had, had settled there. And uh, during their decades of persecution uh, under the Soviet system, uh, they had become, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, fairly legalistic. Uh, fairly strict in their standards, and, uh, and I was teaching the doctrines of grace, and in particular was trying to help them see that every single passage of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is ultimately about the grace of God. Uh, every passage is ultimately about God's mercy to sinners like us. And, and so I gave them a challenge because I was going to be preaching at chapel at the end of, of that course. And so I gave them a challenge that, that they all needed to get together and find one passage in the Bible which is not about the grace of God. And that, that's what I would preach. And um, I believe it was the night before I had to preach. They let me know that they had their passage. And it was the passage from the Gospel according to Matthew uh, in which Judas hangs himself. And they said, we would like you to edify us with the gospel here. So I'm using those sermon notes today just with some different illustrations. It's actually part of a larger pericope, a larger passage in which there are two disciples of Jesus, two early Christian leaders, if you can call them Christian at this point, who deny Jesus and fall away. We're going to begin in Matthew 26, verse 69, and go through 2710 in your pew Bible. It's page 1546 if you want to follow there, or you can follow on the wall. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and, and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore a vow to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse 
and he returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple, and he left. And then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. What do we see here? First, we see that Judas and Peter were alike in just about every way. Notice the similarities Peter and Judas both had identified themselves as followers of Jesus. They both had leadership roles within Jesus' inner circle, the Twelve. They had both insisted on occasion that they would never betray Jesus. And yet they both betrayed Jesus, both for the same reason, to advance their own comfort and well-being. And then afterwards, they both were seized with a realization of what they had done, and they both grieved it. Peter wept bitterly, and Judas was filled with remorse. And this means that as believers, we are way more like Peter and, frankly, way more like Judas than we realize. Do you realize, even Christian leaders, we're talking about people like me, how close we are at any given moment to falling and falling badly. You know, I think of a a pastor who helped shape me in many ways. He had a thriving ministry, and he, he was at the height of his ministry. He was my age. He was a celebrity. He had Christian book deals. He spoke at Concordia Seminary. His first name became a brand. He was known by his first name. Everybody knew it. His church was thriving. Lives were being changed. He was preaching the gospel until word leaked out about the affair. And it wasn't an affair that he realized he had gotten into and went to confess. No, he was caught. And so he repented publicly, he stepped down from ministry, he worked, supposedly to work on himself and to pick up the pieces of a shattered marriage. And then he eventually started working as a staff person at another church, and that's when word leaked out about the other affair, the one he had had even earlier, the one that he had never disclosed when he was supposedly repenting of the other affair. He's not a demon. It's a Christian leader who fell and fell badly. He's your brother in Christ. He's a lonely guy in ministry, and you get lonely guys in ministry, and he was in a marriage that didn't really satisfy, and some of you are in marriages that don't really satisfy, where it's a struggle. And he was surrounded by people who looked up to him but did not know him. And when the arms of God seemed very, very distant from him, he fell into the arms of another. Do you realize how close 
any one of us is to falling at any given moment. I'm a sinful man. You too. And there but for the grace of God go I and go you. I was doing my federal income taxes this year and you know, as a, as a, a, a member of the clergy, you actually uh, are self-employed uh, for tax purposes. You pay self-employment tax, uh, 15.3% or whatever, instead of, instead of, you know, that, that tiny little thing you all pay called, called FICA. And, uh, and, and, you know, but there are also creative ways to do taxes, and you can learn all about them online and with a good accountant. And I was working on my taxes, doing them one way, uh, a way that, that the tax attorney had actually shown me to do them. And as I, I looked, you know, I, I, it would probably have slipped through and I would have gotten $4,000 back in a tax return from the federal government. And, uh, and as I looked at it, it just didn't seem right to me. Um, I went online and read and found out that there was actually a preferred way to do them, one that was completely forthright and above board, but that would have meant that I owed the federal government a thousand bucks. Now, that's a $5,000 difference for a guy who just bought a condo that needs a lot of work. Uh, you know, $5,000 difference is, you know, furnishing my guest bedroom. That's getting my gas fireplace up and working. That's getting the, the pocket doors between my living room and dining room refinished and, and functional. That's bringing an electrician to do a lot of things that just need to be done so that I can hang the television on the wall. And, you know, it wasn't easy giving Uncle Sam permission to dip into my Bank of America checking account and take 1000 bucks when I could get $4,000 from, from Sam, Uncle. was so close to falling. It's so easy for that ethical edge to become fuzzy, to give just a little bit, to qualify just a little bit, to fudge just a little bit, to let things slide, you know, take care of myself for a change. It's easy to fall and fall badly. It happened to Peter. It happened to Judas. And we should see ourselves in this passage right there between Peter and Judas. How many marriages have you watched fall apart? How many families explode? How many churches suffer from the sins of their leaders? how easily we stumble. And when you fall, when you realize you've fallen badly and you know just how messed up you are, so broken, when you see yourself as damaged goods and you feel that shame rush over you and the remorse and the grief and you start to hear every voice since childhood telling you that you stink, that you're a reject, that you're a failure, and then like Peter, you might weep bitterly, or like Judas, you might be filled with remorse. And we see in Matthew this account of two church leaders who are basically the same in most aspects, who fell and fell badly. Two narratives back-to-back and intertwined, Peter and Judas, two of the twelve. And when these two men, these two leaders, if you will, when they had both fallen and fallen badly, when they were flooded with the shame and the humiliation of knowing that you've blown it, that realization of the darkness in our own hearts, and you see your selfishness and you see your cowardice, what happens? What happened to these two men? Well, Judas killed himself. You know, 
Judas is described in John's gospel as the one destined to perdition earlier in this passage. Uh, the passage that indicated that, that Judas was, was not really a believer. And, but, but I want to just note briefly that, that suicide does not always mean that somebody is not a Christian. And it doesn't always mean that somebody isn't necessarily going into the arms of their father in heaven. There are lots of reasons that people commit suicide. There is mental illness. There is hopelessness and despair. Sometimes it's actually a vengeful desire to get someone back, to make somebody feel guilty for what they've done by taking your life. But, but even though it's always a deeply sinful act, I know there are some churches that teach that suicide is an automatic ticket to hell, that is not in the Bible. It is nowhere in Scripture. And, and don't ever let that stand. <laughs> but in this case, we know that Judas, from elsewhere, was not believing Jesus. Notice, even in this passage, on what level Judas is operating. Notice his theology. Notice how he's processing his relationship with God. Uh, Notice how he's approaching God with his sin. You see a man who is still trying in some way to earn his forgiveness. He takes the money when he's filled with grief, and he takes it and tries to undo the deed. Try not to be that guy who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's a small fortune. So he gives the money back to God. He throws throws it into the temple. Here, God, take this. Take it back. It's like he's trying to undo his sin, maybe trying not to be the big sinner, maybe trying to buy God off to appease God's judgment through his self-effort, through what he does. He's still not getting it. It's like he's saying, I didn't do this. I'm not really that kind of guy. Instead of owning the big sin and saying, actually, I'm exactly the kind of guy who would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And because of that, I need a savior. I need mercy. But he's still not getting it. He's still not understanding. He's still doing religion. He's looking to priests to fix him. He's looking to his own works. He's trying to give the money back. He's missing everything Jesus had been saying all along. And as a result, Judas has no hope here. Not at all. It's absolute despair of any salvation. It's, it's one of the things that human religion does to you. And human religion is our effort to get God's blessing through what we do. And, and human religion tells you that your value hinges on how well you perform, how obedient you are, how much money you give, how many prayers you pray, how pure your thought life is, how clean your browser history is, how good of a parent you are, how much you love God. And, and, and if you do those things well, religion will puff you up and swell you up with pride and arrogance and keep you far from God because you won't think you need Jesus. And then when you do those things poorly and you don't perform, when you fall and when you fall badly, religion will lead you to absolute despair, to the same black hole in which Judas found himself. What are the signs that you're still doing religion? If you're still doing religion, you're going to have a vague sense that God probably doesn't like you. That's because you think that you need to have some quality in yourself that would draw God's blessing, that would earn God's blessing. You need to, you need to be lovable in order for God to truly love you. And, and as you start to realize your own failings and as you fall, you're going to realize more and more 
that, that you don't measure up and, and you're going to think that God probably doesn't like you. You're also going to feel God is unapproachable, especially right after you've sinned. You know, you say you've just done something you know you shouldn't have done. You've gone someplace you know you shouldn't have gone. You've blown up at your kids in front of other people. You lied to your boss, cheated on your taxes, whatever it is. And so then you put in an effort to do better before you crack open your Bible and start praying to God. Because you think that you have to have some track record of repentance in order to bring, in order to show God. See, God, I've turned a corner. I'm doing better now, Lord. Now I need your blessing. It's doing human religion, thinking you have to make amends before you can ask forgiveness and blessing. Like you have to bring something to God to get his attention. That's religion, and it's the opposite of Christianity, and that's what Judas was doing all along. You know, if you're still doing religion, you're going to find yourself looking with Judas for a human intermediary. You notice how he goes, how, how he goes to, to the priest? He's not going to Jesus in a cell and saying, Jesus, you're the son of God. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. No, he's going to the priest. He wants somebody to keep God at a safe distance that can go in between him and God. And that's, that's what religion very often does, is it, it's always looking for an intermediary. You know, it's like, um, you know, don't ever come to me instead of coming to Jesus. I don't want to compete with him. Uh, you know, pastors are good for some things. Um, they're good for giving you theological advice. Pastors are good at telling you what a particular Bible passage might mean. They're good at giving you resources so that you can study and learn these things yourself. But a, a pastor, a priest, can't fix you. They can't fix your situation. Scott Saul says it this way. He says, if you have to, have, if you have to call the pastor 24-7, you're looking for Jesus, and your pastor is not Jesus. Uh, I know of one pastor. It was actually uh, um, 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 Jack. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But uh, uh, um, Jack Miller, um, when he would have people come to his office, he would always have them schedule it 30 minutes before the meeting because they would need to talk, and, and he would require them to go into the empty sanctuary and sit with a Bible for 30 minutes. And then after 30 minutes, they could come in and see if they still needed to meet. And he said three, or, three out of four times, they'd come to his door after 30 minutes alone with a Bible in a sanctuary and say, you know, Pastor, I'm okay. I got what I needed. They were looking to their pastor instead of Jesus. They were going to the priest instead of going to Jesus. Watch out for looking to people to do what only God can do. Watch out for, for looking to process with, with a priest or a pastor or a girlfriend or a roommate or whoever when the person you really need to be going to is your Savior. Um, religion. It leaves you with a vague sense that God doesn't like you. It leaves you feeling that God is unapproachable, especially when you've just blown it. And it leaves you looking for a human intermediary, and yet it also leaves you absolutely hopeless when you fall. And that's what it did to Judas. Judas killed himself. There was no longer anywhere to turn. He was in total despair. His religion gave him no resources with which to cope with the darkness and brokenness of his own heart. But what of Peter? This is Peter's last mention in Matthew's gospel. There's, there's really no record in this book of his repentance. He's, he's left in this narrative in a position of denying Christ. 
And, and what gives? Every reader in the early church would have known that Peter was one of their main leaders. He was, in the book of Acts, the spokesperson for all of the other apostles. Uh, when they speak, then Peter speaks for them. Uh, it seems like Matthew is wanting to leave Peter there as the biggest sinner the betrayer of Jesus, that guy who threw it all away in a foolish effort to cover his own behind, the fallen leader who fell and fell hard, as it's Matthew is, is leaving him at that point, I think, in order to stress the fact that Peter did not restore himself. It's not something in Peter that made the difference between Peter and Judas. So what made the difference? Peter and Judas are alike in just about every way, the same sin. And Judas killed himself. So what made the difference? The only difference between Judas and Peter is the grace of God. See, Jesus had prayed for Peter in Luke 22, he he'd prayed for him and said, Simon, Simon, his name was Simon Peter. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. To be prayed for by Jesus. To have Jesus interceding for you before the Father. It's the best defense attorney you could possibly ask for because it's the only defense attorney who's also the judge. And he, to have him in your employ. In all of our foolishness and frailty and sin and weakness and shame. And yet it's true if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your Savior, then it's also true of you. 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is advocating for you right now. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You have a, a mediator arguing your case before the Father. Romans 8, Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God, who is interceding continually for us. Hebrews 7, another New Testament author, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for you. Jesus interceding for Peter, Jesus interceding for you if you are in Christ. If Jesus is speaking up for you, arguing on your behalf, you have the most capable hands in the cosmos, able to keep you from falling. And should you fall, able to restore you, binding up a brokenhearted. He is the one who is the potter, who can take the clay and redeem it. We are clay in his hands. And this Jesus is on his way to die for Peter. You notice that the glue holding together the Peter account and, and the Judas account is the glue of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27 that Jesus will be executed. He is being led away. He is being handed over to Pilate. The cross is overshadowing this passage and all of these events, the betrayals, the denials, the scattering of the disciples, all of it is part of God's plan to save. Jesus does this willingly, this most ugly act in human history, humanity's killing of the Son of God 
deicide, killing the author of life. That most ugly betrayal was the very means through which forgiveness must come. Jesus, in this passage, already taking up our debts, taking up our shame, absorbing the darkness, taking it into himself so that you don't have to bear it any longer. All that's ugly and shameful and unjust about me, about you, about Peter. He was, Jesus was our sin bearer, taking the blame for all of us, for what we had done against him and against each other. All her debts were cast on me, and so she must and shall go free. Realize the difference this made in Peter's life. The only way that we know about this shameful act of Peter is because Peter made sure we heard about it. The other disciples weren't watching. He told them. That's how it's recorded in the gospel. Now, what could take a man who's fearful for his own life, and willing to deny Jesus Christ publicly three times and make him into a guy who's willing to own his sin, to admit it, to have it broadcast. It would not be in the Bible if Simon Peter did not authorize it. He was the leader of those early apostles. You know, they're looking to him. This would have gone over his desk, and he would have had to sign off on it. But to have the freedom to admit it, to say, I'm the kind of guy who would absolutely deny Jesus to save my life. To have that freedom. What's he calling you to own? What in your life is so damaged that you're just in denial about it? You don't want to admit it. You don't want to own it. You don't want to face it. You don't want to name it. What's God calling you to admit? What's the Spirit calling you to name? Imagine the freedom when you are so loved and so accepted and so secure in the arms of your Father. When Jesus has your back so strongly and you're so confident in that that you can say, I denied Jesus publicly three times before a whole bunch of non-Christians to save my life. That's freedom. And only the gospel can do that. So that 30 years later, this same Peter goes to his death for the name of Jesus. Even the field points us to the potter's power to save. Did you notice the field? The details that Matthew chooses to include in his account, they're significant. The priests used Jesus' blood money to buy a pottery workshop in order to get the land that the potter would have dug up clay from in order to make his pottery. And that land they used to bury foreigners, to bury Jew, people who were not Jews, people who were, from beyond, who were beyond God's grace in the Jewish view. And Matthew tells us that the prophet Jeremiah had spoken about this very potter's field, and yet the passage he quotes is actually drawn from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 11, not from Jeremiah. And Matthew appears to be conflating two Hebrew passages, one in which the prophet Zechariah speaks of a potter's field, the field from which he gets his clay, and a parallel passage in Jeremiah 18, which speaks of God as the very potter who can take that clay, the clay of unbelieving Israel, and take it and fashion it into something beautiful, amazing, and blessed by God. It's the potter's prerogative to do what he wants with the clay, the power of God the potter that can take even hopeless clay and shape it into something beautiful. I think we've got some photos. Do we have that first photo? This is a uh, 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 kintsugi. Uh, kintsugi is a kind of Japanese pottery ba- 
dating back as, as far as the 15th century. And Kintsugi is, is stunningly beautiful and it's highly treasured. But Kintsugi pottery is pottery that tells a story. You see, Kintsugi begins always with a fall. A ceramic plate or a ceramic cup is dropped to the floor and it shatters. And something that had been beautiful and useful and good is now cracked and broken and ruined. No longer fit for its intended purpose. And it always begins with a fall. We've got another photo here. But rather than discard the broken pottery, a kintsugi artisan will take the shattered pieces and then enter into a process of reattaching them using resin mixed with pure gold. Uh, got another photo here. Uh, it's the potter's hands. There's, there's no effort to disguise the crack. Uh, we've got another one here. Um, in fact, as a philosophy, Kintsugi treats the breakage and the repair as a part of the history of the object. It's a part of the object's story. So rather than trying to disguise the cracks, Kintsugi is, is actually considered more valuable for having once been broken and then being repaired. It's more valuable and more precious because the artisan, the potter, has restored it. The goal is not to be perfect, but to reveal the beautiful story of one's fall and one's restoration. Those gold seams, they tell the story of the fall and the loss, but they also tell the story of redemption, of the artist that redeemed it. Kintsugi is actually considered more beautiful than regular pottery, precisely because Kintsugi tells a more beautiful, more compelling story. And it places that story on display, that precious gold, the great, great price that the artisan paid in order to redeem a plain piece of pottery and therefore to elevate it to a position of great and noble worth. We have another photo here. What is a Christian family but this? The restoring hands of the potter, the hands of Jesus, forming a family of broken vessels and displaying the potter's power to restore. And what is a church but this? Next slide. When you walk into the church, you're walking into an art gallery where all these different pieces are on display. I'm a little coffee mug somewhere in the back with lots of gold seams in it. Uh, You know, they're different shapes. They're different sizes and they're different styles, all of you. But all of you have the same thing in common. You can see it on every piece. It's the gold lines that reflect the light. Every piece with a different pattern. But you don't notice the damage that was done. What catches your eye is the beauty of the restoration. You see the artist's work. Only the pieces in a church, they're still getting damaged. The artist is walking around the gallery with gold, reattaching the pieces and filling the gaps. And the beauty of it all together tells you everything you need to know about the character of the potter. A potter who loves to pick up the broken pieces and mend them, leaving behind a stunning pattern that displays the potter's power to save. Friends, that's the church. A people known not by the good things that they do. That's religion. It will kill you. A people known by the good that has been done to them by their Savior, the artist, their Savior, the potter, their Savior, Jesus. The Savior's marks are all over them. That's how you can recognize them. You see that community and you can tell 
the most defining experience of their lives was the fact that they fell and they were broken and they received grace and restoration and healing. What did the priests do with the blood money that Jesus threw at God? They purchased the potter's field, the field of clay. The potter's field so that they could bury foreigners who don't know the grace of God, so that they could bury those who are out of reach of the grace of God. Friends, they are buried under the price of the blood of Jesus because that's what Jesus died to create, a place where even the worst unbeliever might be remade by God the potter, their hearts their souls formed and reshaped by Christ the potter's powerful hands in a place that has been purchased by the cost of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the potter, we are the clay. And you can take the clay of unbelieving Israel And in its fallenness and in its brokenness, you can mend it and transform it into a vessel of noble use. Lord Jesus, you have loved us. The scars are here, but they don't look like scars. They're bright and gleaming gold. Because every one of them shows the healing work of you, our Savior. We come to this meal now as your church, consecrating to you the elements on this table that you might minister the good news to the people that you've loved. Amen.